Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. In times like this, it's smart to keep your profile maybe a bit lower, but your head up and, you know, lay the groundwork for tomorrow. Do your job today. Stay optimistic. Lay the groundwork for tomorrow because tomorrow will be better, almost certainly, than today. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. That was Dan Ash, my guest for this week. You're going to have to stick around to figure out what he was talking about with that great quote. Dan is the president and CEO of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums and former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for seven years during the Obama administration. Dan and I talk about how zoos and aquariums are playing a role in species adaptation, and we talk a bit about Dan's climate legacy leading the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's a great conversation with a longtime legend in the conservation community. First off, I want to thank all those who are supporting America Adapts. Sometimes it's not clear, but America Adapts is a 501c3 charitable organization supported by listeners like you. If you've been thinking about donating, please consider a recurring donation. Even $5 a month is incredibly helpful. Some of you subscribe, listen to two, three, even four hours of the podcast a month. So that's the price of a latte once a month to hear all those great conversations. And again, thanks to those who are already supporting the podcast. Okay, I mention this all the time, but I have a great story. I love when my listeners reach out to me to share ideas for guests or to share their thoughts on a previous guest or some just want to say hello. So here's a big shout out to Kate Bishop Williams, the sessional lecturer of Health 370 class at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Go King Warriors! Kate reached out to me and told me that her class of 175 students were going to listen to one of my previous episodes with guest Mark Morano, Deconstructing a Climate Change Skeptic, which, by the way, is my most popular episode of all time. Then they were required to write a one-page analysis about what they learned specifically dealing with science communication. I wanted to see some of these when they were done, so Kate asked for volunteers to share their one-page summaries, and I got over 25. So thanks to all of you guys who shared. They were great. I even saw a couple skeptics were in Kate's class. They gave thoughtful replies, and I learned something from hearing from their perspective. I hope you guys continue to listen to the podcast. So I loved hearing from Kate. I have heard from a couple professors using the podcast, but this was in the most formal way. I'm glad it's a useful resource. And if anyone else there is using it in a similar manner, please let me know. All right, upcoming guest. I'd mentioned before I have the California Adapt series coming out in March. It's a three-part series I'm co-producing with Randy Olson. I traveled up and down the state interviewing experts on fire, temperature, sea level rise, drought, and flood. I even got to interview the actor Ed Begley Jr., who gave us a fantastic history lesson in pollution in Southern California. Stay tuned for that. And up next, I have Jeff Goodell, contributing editor from Rolling Stone magazine. Jeff came on to talk about his new book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World, where he travels a world to see how the sea level rise is impacting modern society and what we can expect next. It's a riveting book, and Jeff and I had a fascinating conversation. He's a really great guy, and we even chatted about why Rolling Stone magazine has made climate change such a priority. We usually associate that magazine with interviews with U2, Tom Petty, or other pop culture topics. But they have people like Jeff writing amazing pieces on climate change. And that episode will be out soon. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Dan Ash. 
Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting Dan Ash, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or AZA. Prior to this position with AZA, Dan was the Director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at the Department of the Interior for seven years during the Obama administration. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you very much, Doug. You can't get rid of me, can you? <laughs> no. <laughs> you left that world, and now yeah. here I am back in your business. So. I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here. I mean, climate change is a great topic. It's a great topic for our members as well, the people that are really concerned about, about the conservation of animals in nature. I want to talk about two topics here, and so I think I mentioned this to you, is that I want to know what AZA is about, sure. and obviously uh, there's some climate change questions I have with that, and then I would like to talk about your your time at, in, in the federal government with the Fish and Wildlife Service, because I think a lot of people are very interested. Things are a bit different these days, and yeah. so just your thoughts and perspectives of what's going on, and you know, especially in light of your legacy with climate change at the Fish and Wildlife Service. So that's what I'm hoping we'll do here. Great. Well, I'll start off with uh, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. We are 230 members, and are in order to be a member of AZA, you have to be accredited by AZA. And so, and our accreditation standards are are widely viewed as the gold standard in the zoological community. So, we represent, for instance, about 10% of the people who are licensed to display animals in the United States. Um, so very high standards of performance for animal care, guest experience, conservation, research, education. So in order to be AZA accredited, you have to be really a kind of full service zoological institution. And they are uh, mission driven organizations. So they're purposeful. Uh, the display of animals in any of our facilities is really driven by the notion that those animals are there for a purpose. They're there to help inspire the public to care for and to conserve animals in nature. How's climate change coming up at the AZA? I've been on your website. I've sort of dug around and do a lot of education. So how, and you've only, and could you maybe just, how long have you been at AZA now? Uh, just a little over a year now. You are in AZA though. It's right. not the three month honeymoon or anything. No, no. Is climate change coming up through the zoos or sort of the work that you're doing with AZA? It comes up all the time because these institutions are science-driven organizations. They apply science every day in the context of animal care, and they apply science in the context of helping to conserve animals in nature. So climate change is a issue of grave concern to all of our members. I guess I want to hear more, too. Yeah. Like you have zoos, and... They re the zoos are everywhere. You know, yeah. they're in red states, they're in blue states, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you guys view them as they're ambassadors for conservation, for exactly. like, look at this world that we live in. And I've gone to some zoos where there's really, and I, do, they, do you describe it as waysides? That's what they do in the National Park Service, the signage is waysides. And yeah. so some zoos have some really great climate change waysides, saying this yeah. is what's happening to these species, here are the threats. Now, do you feel consistently across the board that most of the zoos are talking about climate change? Because you think of the species that they're inevitably, some of them are being impacted by climate change. Are you seeing that in the zoos? Yeah, we are seeing that. So just for instance, last week we had our director's policy conference in Monterey, California. Monterey Bay Aquarium was our host. And Monterey Bay Aquarium is doing um, a lot of work and a lot of messaging on on climate change. You see that here at, at the Smithsonian's National Zoo. We see it at National Aquarium in in Baltimore. So the 
messaging from our members is very clear. I mean, it, 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 they're like everybody else. You can only get so many messages across to guests when they're, while they are visiting. And so they tend to be more Spartan, I think, in terms of uh, signage and things like that. But um, certainly there's a lot of active signage in many of our facilities and many of our keepers and during presentations to guests are incorporating climate change in their presentations to guests as they're talking about the conservation of ele- of elephant or rhinoceros or leopard or pangolin or butterflies, um, uh, you know, pollinators in general. But are there any zoos that sort of give you feedback saying, you know what, we get too much grief when we talk about these things, or we put up a display and we've heard nothing but complaints. And do you get that kind of feedback here at AZA? I don't get that kind of feedback. If anything, I, I think our members are looking for more ways to convey climate change. So it, it's a complicated subject, as you know. And so uh, how do you convey that in very kind of simple terms to guests who are, who are spending, you know, maybe three to five hours with you on any given day? They're, they're there to have a good time and we want them to have a good time. They're, and you don't want to confront them with, too much uh, bad news. And it's not only climate change, it's something like the kind of uh, epidemic in the poaching and trafficking of elephants. So when you're, when guests are there and they're seeing elephants, you can convey some information, but you don't want it to be so stark and so disturbing that it essentially, you know, numbs them to uh, the, the message that you're trying to get across. And as you know, climate change is the same. You have to present it in a way uh, that is inspiring to your guests and not uh, depressive to your guests. And so I think that's the challenge at, at, a, at zoos and aquariums. And when they present the information, I don't get the sense from our members that they're getting negative feedback, that people don't want to hear it. The question is always, are they hearing it, right? And so I think that's the challenge for us is to convey that information in a way that's, that's helpful and engaging and inspiring. Yeah, I think of zoos and the volume of people that go through zoos. I mean, there's this incredibly popular people. 200 million uh, guests um, in almost 200 million guests in 2017. And with that number will exceed 200 million guests this year. And many of them are uh, school-aged children. Probably more than 60 million of those are school-aged children. And I, if I had to predict, there's probably more people reading those waysides because you're going from one display to the next. And so even though, like you said, you have to simplify these messages, that can resonate with lots of people. And so it does seem like an opportunity to say, all right, look at the threats, habitat destruction, climate change. It's- exactly. And that's, again, that's uh, throughout our zoos and aquariums. Last year in September, we had our annual meeting in Indianapolis and in Indianapolis Zoo was the host. And so, um, and that's, has been an amazing, inspiring thing to me coming to this community is that when you look at the mission statements of, of most of our members, it's not running a zoo. So the mission statement for the Indianapolis Zoo says nothing about running a zoo. Their mission statement is about conserving animals in nature. And so they are a conservation organization. And when you go there, for instance, when you uh, go and you see flighted macaw at Indianapolis Zoo, their messaging is all about the plight of macaws in the wild. And 
what's happening due to deforestation and climate change. As I have new guests on the podcast, I have to do a lot of my own homework. And I, I guess I haven't thought about zoos and aquariums much. I've taken my two sons to, we love aquariums and love yeah. zoos. And yeah, what really is their role? And I just recently did a a snow leopard episode. Oh, yeah. WWF and Snow Leopard Trust played a big part. And what was surprising to me, the whole point of the podcast was talking about adaptation in Central Asia, you know, where the snow leopard's at. But then what kind of came out of that is like the network of zoos that play a role in snow leopard conservation. It's really just this, I mean, is AZA part of that or are they kind of doing that on their own? Oh, no, AZA is the is the centerpiece of that. And so breeding an, a cat, an animal like snow leopard is inherently difficult. And so you'll hear people talk about crack the code, right? You have to uh, to get a lot of these animals to breed um, in human care, you have to you have to crack the code. You have to figure out what it is that uh, stimulates a reproductive behavior and then, you know, how to get a mother cat to care for those young. And if she won't, then how do you how do humans care for them? And so a couple of AZA institutions have been uh, instrumental in cracking the code on snow leopard and clouded leopard and cheetah. So um, institutions like the Smithsonian National Zoo here, um, Memphis Zoo, um, uh, even uh, Cape May Zoo, small zoo in coastal New Jersey. Have you ever seen a snow leopard in the wild? I've never seen a snow leopard in the wild. It's a, li- it's a lifeless kind of thing, but you, you, got, you have to be really lucky to see them in the wild. So I had quite a few uh, researchers, snow leopard researchers, and I'd ask them that question, and most of them saw one, but they, they had a chance to go out there over and over. But one of the researchers, Chinese researchers, she went up, and she came within like two meters of a snow leopard. It just came out and didn't take off. And so she t- and she was traveling with uh, Robert Sch- Schaller, the snow leopard, the famous biologist. Yeah, well, and most of our um, our members too are, of course, they're you know caring for and learning about these animals um, in the uh, zoo environment. You know, um, ex situ, as you know, scientists like to say. Um, but they're also engaged in conserving these animals in nature, and so all of them uh, contribute directly to. Uh, conservation in nature. And our members, 230 of them, last year contributed $216 million collectively to field conservation. So that's money that went to the field to support research and conservation on animals like snow leopard. And a lot of that is funding work in uh, climate change and climate adaptation. And uh, so as we are dealing with uh, the conservation of coral, for example, um, many of our aquariums are funding work that's right at the cutting edge of what's driving uh, ocean temperature, what's driving salinity and pH, and how does that relate to coral reef adaptation. A lot of them are doing uh, coral rearing and learning how to grow coral in an aquarium setting and then how to take that into nature and try to figure out how we might be able Uh, to begin to help coral reefs adapt in the future. Do you hear that language specifically? This podcast is mainly about adaptation, how we're going to adapt to climate change and the signage. I mean, are people specifically talking about adaptation 
at the zoos because you know all we're helping animals adapt versus like you know adaptations its own field now our zoos and aquariums specifically participating in those discussions talking about vulnerability assessments and scenario planning and is that something that's coming up you know, I, I know less about that, although I'll say that um, our members, uh, we, we have a whole network of um, zoos that are um, you know, responding to, to natural disaster. And so certainly in Hurricane Katrina, we had the Audubon Zoo and Aquarium in New Orleans, and they were ground zero in, in Katrina. And we, this just this past year in Texas with Hurricane Harvey, we had the Landry's Downtown Aquarium, Houston Zoo, San Antonio Zoo, uh, Texas State Aquarium, and Corpus Christi that were all right in the in the teeth of that that storm and kind of responding in real time. Well, then that leads to questions about how can you reduce vulnerability in the future, and so certainly at Audubon. A zoo in New Orleans, they've taken steps post-Katrina to, to minimize their risk. Um, and certainly in the wake of Hurricane Harvey and, and, and Irma in Florida, um, we'll have uh, facilities like Naples Zoo, which was, again, that, that's, where the, that, that's where Irma made landfall, is uh, right in that part of Florida. They'll be um, taking steps to uh, look at the damage that happened and how can you mitigate that uh, that damage in the future in terms of uh, redesign of facility, elevation of structure, movement of structure, how you manage trees. A lot of the damage in our in in members in Florida was tree damage. You know, falling trees, damaging facility, damaging fence. Uh, they're I think constantly going through that process of adaptation. You know, I wasn't even thinking about that way with the infrastructure of zoos. And that's, I mean, that's obviously mm-hmm. something that to think about. I, I guess I was more thinking of the role of zoos and aquariums as the climate changes, as the sort of natural systems, some of them are going to unravel. And mm-hmm. let's, Doug, the people be like, Doug, all right, zoos, sometimes they're considered quite controversial. Some people don't like zoos. Yeah. I like zoos. I like aquariums. <laughs> uh, some I think yeah. run really terribly. I'm sure that concerns you guys a lot. But more along the lines is that are zoos and aquariums going to just be arcs for species? Do you think of how some of these systems are going to unravel? And maybe that's a role that zoos and aquariums haven't maybe even thought about much. It's just like these systems are just coming apart and we offer a place for that. So a couple of things on your statement. Uh, There definitely is a thing... Uh, called they're they're definitely zoos and aquariums are like everything else they're they fall on a scale from great to good to bad aza members tend to be on the great end of the spectrum so good to great um the there is definitely something called a bad zoo and aquarium and that's something that i think we have to increasingly recognize and address in our uh, larger community the performance of a great zoo is one that does exactly what you're saying. Now, ARC means uh, we probably can't do that. So we, as we're living in the midst of what scientists are calling a sixth a mass extinction, we can't be the place that is the harbinger of the last of everything because you simply don't have the space, you don't have the capacity 
don't have the budget to support that. Can you be the, a place where you can have intelligent thought and um, exercise of conservation that is going to help um, those species to survive in the wild, many of those species to survive in the wild, yes. And increasingly, species that are on the brink that can be saved, I think zoos and aquariums are going to are going to help play that role and be a place where a convening place where um, experts can come and discuss um, how we can uh, reduce the collateral damage um, to biological diversity. This must be hard for you, though. Just I, I wonder personally, you go from the Fish and Wildlife Service and this, the National Refuge, mm-hmm. and the whole point is to preserve these systems so that wildlife have places to live over the long term. Mm-hmm. And now you're at zoos, which you're, you're more focused on this sort of you're artificially managing these species. And so it's, it's a bit different. So it must be sort of a, a bit of a culture because you're not managing zoos and aquariums or finding policies to manage them naturally. I know you do education and things like that. So that must be a bit of a culture change. Well, they do though. So for instance, I mean, coming here, I, I know a, a big cross section of this community because I've worked with them before. So um, San Diego Zoo, for instance. I mean, I've worked with San Diego Zoo for years and years on Hawaiian birds and the conservation of Hawaiian birds. And I think, as you know, I mean, the the key um, ingredient in success or failure with Hawaiian birds um, is understanding the the impact of climate change as the climate warms in Hawaii and and invasive mosquitoes are carrying avian malaria upslope um, in Hawaii. And that's really the, in in combination with habitat loss, that really is what's driving these Hawaiian birds uh, toward extinction. They have, they have increasingly small, smaller and smaller refugia from diseases, invasive diseases like avian malaria. And so San Diego Zoo Global has been a constant and a significant partner for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in conserving that that important slice of biological diversity, native biological diversity in, in Hawaii. And so the birds that are in captivity and the reproductive techniques that San Diego Zoo Global has been bringing and the research and the understanding that they've been bringing um, has direct applicability to conservation at that landscape scale in the field. The same is true with uh, something like uh, Hellbender, which uh, St. Louis Zoo, several other of our members like Columbus Zoo and Aquarium are helping to rear in captivity. And they're they're rearing, and these are animals that take um, several years to get to the point where you can release them. But they're releasing thousands of animals a year but in order to have that be successful, you have to understand the hydrology and the ecology of entire aquatic systems in Appalachia and in uh, the Mississippi River Valley. And so, uh, again, that relates to climate change and what's happening to temperature and hydrologic cycle in these uh, river systems. And so it's a species like hellbender, but it's an aquatic it's a, it's a wide-ranging ecological system that 
you have to understand in order to do the work well. You know, I guess part of what I'm getting at, too, is when you were at the Fish and Wildlife Service, you, you would have like an adaptation workshop and you would come up with a list of options. It's like, well, we need to expand the landscape to have these areas for the wildlife to move into. So there's different ways of trying to finesse the natural environment to adjust. All right, let's build in some some options here. And at some point, it's just that's not going to cut it. And I think I, I was involved with some scenario planning on the key deer. And you've, mm-hmm. you've been down there. You know yeah. it well. And one of the scenarios was to just translocation is an option for adaptation. You move the species somewhere else. And if you move the key deer to the mainland, it just basically becomes a genetically deficient deer species that's competing with like <laughs> more healthy deer. deer. Right. And that's translocation. And what am I getting at here is that I wonder at some point, and maybe we're seeing a little of this already, is that zoos and aquariums are now part of that conversation. Like the American pika is considered threatened. At some point, they're just going to snuff out in the wild. Do zoos and aquariums kind of fly in and saying the future of these species are through zoos? This is an adaptation action. And do you, do you feel like that's happened anywhere? Or do you think that's going to happen in the future? It's certain to happen to some extent in the future. But again, I, I, f- I fail to see how zoos and aquariums can, can play that role across the board when we, again, are living in the midst of a, of a mass extinction event, that zoos and aquariums can be kind of, can be viewed practically as some kind of refugia. Number one, I don't necessarily like that conclusion that, well, we'll just preserve all of these species in, in zoo and aquaria refugia, and, we, and therefore we don't really have to worry about them in nature. We'll just we'll preserve relic populations. I don't think this community really would support that as a conclusion, um, that, that they, they can offer some kind of safety net and to console people that, well, we don't have to really worry about the problem because zoos and aquariums can you know, take care of all of these species. It's impractical, number one, and it's not the right policy conclusion. I think zoos and aquariums can and must be a part of the solution to the problem. The solution is engage and inspire people and tell them a complete story about what, what's happening to animals. And the good news is, uh, like, like we talked about, people are coming to zoos and aquariums. They're coming voluntarily. They're walking through the gates. Uh, more and more people every year, they're coming there because at some level, they love animals. What we, I think, are uniquely positioned to do is build a conservation-minded citizenry. And people that, number one, love animals. And when they come to a zoo or aquarium, they love them more. And, and then at that point you know, inspire them and, and give them a positive, optimistic message about what they can do to make a difference. You're wearing your Fish and Wildlife Service optimistic hat on that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm very positive on the podcast, but I, I, to me, the future is unclear. I, I see zoos and aquariums of potentially being sort of living museums. Well, they will be to some extent, but again, they... Um, they have to, I mean, if a zoo and aquarium is the last, well, right now, uh, let's say something like, well, you know, Guam Rail 
If, if you want to see a Guam rail, then you can go to Philadelphia Zoo and uh, you can see one. You can't go to Guam and see one because they, they're extirpated from the wild. Now, the uh, Philadelphia Zoo is a place that's working to figure out what are we going to do with Guam rail? Can we succeed on Guam? If we can't succeed on Guam, is there another place in Micronesia where we can put these birds? Same thing with the Guam kingfisher. You can see one at Philadelphia Zoo. I did a couple of weeks ago when I was there. So that is like the on a broader scale, the key deer analogy. If they can't exist on Guam, and reality is they probably can't, then can we find another home for them? And so for some period of time, Philadelphia Zoo can play that role. But in the end, if you decide we just can't make this work, um, you know, can Philadelphia Zoo and San Diego Zoo and a couple of other partners maintain those birds forever? That's, that's probably not practical. We can we can play that role and and we can use that as a platform from which hopefully we can launch these animals into back into nature somewhere. But can we do that for potentially you know hundreds or thousands of species that are going to be refugee from uh, you know a climate altered in you know globe? You know, probably not. So I think what we have to do is use those species as a platform to engage the public, to inspire action, to help solve the problem. I got a couple of questions related to AZA, then I want to pivot over to Fish and Wildlife Service. More just personally, too, that one of the perks of your previous job is that you would go visit places. You'd meet with staff at the Fish and Wildlife Service and go to these national refuges. Now you visit zoos. And I'm just curious... How's that? Is that, I mean, when, I, I love a zoo, but how's yeah. that? You go from these natural places and I, I love natural systems because of the randomness of it. You know, yeah. you just like something random could happen. And that's right. why we all love nature versus a zoo. It's a bit more, a much more kind of contrived. And so maybe yeah. describe that. And is there a particular zoo in that past year that sort of you, you've had your random moment there that really stood out for you? I mean, there's nothing like a, you know, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or seeing thousands and thousands of cranes, you know, landing in the Platte River in Nebraska or or Palmyra Atoll, you know. Uh, uh, there, there's, there's nothing like that. The reality and what's um, important is that most people are never going to... I had that privilege because of the position I was in. And the most people are never going to have that potential. And when you think about a, a young boy or girl growing up in, uh, in Anacostia, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the Serengeti in Africa are a million miles away for them in any kind of practical sense that the thought that they're ever going to have that opportunity in their in their life for goodness sakes um shenandoah national park is a million miles away for them and the idea that you know somehow they're they're going to you know they're going to have that opportunity certainly during their childhood but national zoo is not and so that kind of moment that they can have with a, with a cheetah or a sea lion or, or an elephant at 
National Zoo, that's where they're going to get that direct connection. Uh, and, and so I think that that's, as I've been, spent this last year, um, I would say, yeah, lots of moments. When you stand in the lorikeet exhibit at Brevard Zoo in Florida and, and you are covered up with lorikeet as a person who has been to some of the most amazing places in the world, that's still pretty special. Um, and the, when you go to the, uh, Savannah exhibit at Dallas zoo and you see giraffe and zebra, um, and elephant and warthog occupying the same space. Um, and you see young, African-American and Hispanic children marveling as if they were looking at the Serengeti. And from a practical standpoint, they are looking at the Serengeti. And seeing that kind of inspiration is is amazing. When you, you go to a place like Georgia Aquarium and you see young children who, grew, who are growing up in Atlanta and they're marveling at dolphin and, and whale shark and manta um, in that beautiful aquarium. I mean, that's, they're never going to see that in nature. And so that's what's amazing to me. Those are, those are increasingly rare opportunities. Um, but these people are providing it and the evolution in the zoo and aquarium community is toward much more naturalistic habitat. And so you're seeing animals in a much better way than uh, they've ever had the opportunity to see them before. So Pretty amazing uh, when you think about that kind of experience. I had that moment with the lorikeets when I lived in Australia. I was Sunshine Coast covered with lorikeets, yeah. and they were drinking my Coca-Cola out of my thing. <laughs> and so, it, yeah. You know, and like I said, you know, you, you could see somebody like me who's been to some of the most amazing places in the world and had the opportunity to see amazing wildlife. But, I mean, you're like a little kid when you're in there holding a little cup of, you know, sugar water. I wonder if these... Funny animal videos on YouTube are ruining the zoo experience because they'll get there and like, well, why isn't the chimpanzee jumping around like yeah. it did in that video? <laughs> that's like a lo- that's a long term concern, you know. Yeah. Last question on AZA, and I think of the content that you guys could generate through all these zoos, and maybe you already have one. Do you guys have a podcast? We don't. You guys, here's my advice: get a podcast. You would yeah. have unlimited content. Yeah. Get a good host. Maybe Dan, you do it once in a while, but you need a regular host. Yeah. And these zoos would be unlimited material, and you could share anyway. I'm becoming an ambassador of podcasting, and it's just the sort of person who's listening to a podcast. It's a it's a yeah. deeper thing than like watching a webinar or maybe right. a two minute video. So yeah. highly, and it's cheap, and yeah. yeah. So anyway, right. I was sitting when I came, and I'm like, you guys need to be podcasters. <laughs> Hey adapters, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dan. I just want to check in in case it wasn't obvious. Dan is currently the president of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and that's what we just talked about. But now the conversation turns to his long tenure as director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under President Obama. Okay, back to Dan. So I had mentioned I'm going to transition while I still have you, is that you're, you have this storied career. You've been a federal employee for a long time, and... I, I forgot to mention you, your father recently passed. I, he did. My, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. I, oh, I, thanks. I, he, he had a. He was 88. He had a long uh, and very good life. So 
It sounded like it. And you followed in his footsteps, and I'm sure he was proud. He was a Fish and Wildlife Service employee, too. He was. 37 years uh, for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Accomplished a lot. And uh, so, again, I think uh, we we had a celebration of his life a couple of weeks ago up in Massachusetts. And a lot of his old Fish and Wildlife colleagues were there. And a lot of my uh, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service colleagues. And just lots of friends and family. So it was very very good. Well, he, he... he yeah. was around long enough to see you become the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service. That must be a beaming moment for him. So. I, I, I think it was, yeah. And uh, he was there when I was sworn in in Ken Salazar's office, both he and my mother. And uh, so uh, that's a great memory for me. And I think it was a, it was a great moment for, for him. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was great, although he's the kind of person he would – call me up and you know i'd get these uh he wasn't much for leaving voice messages but you'd get a message like hey dan this is your dad what the hell is going on in the fish and wildlife service and uh he'd read some article in audubon magazine or something about wolves or grizzly bears and you know i'd, I'd get this little message from him like okay i'll give you a call <laughs> right right so he goes from being father to he's just a rank and file and ploy you're doing everything wrong the director's always exactly. doing everything always wrong right. so, yeah, exactly. and he's got a, a phone call i can get a hold of you so yeah. that's, that's fun but but the yeah the fish and wildlife service is a great place as you know i think uh, we were we were one of if not the first natural resource agency to develop a climate change strategic plan we did that well, it was it was published at the beginning of the Obama administration, but the the all the work and the spade work for that was done during the Bush administration. And so, in a climate that people generally thought was pretty unfriendly to climate change and 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 talk of climate change, had previous directors like Steve Williams and Dale Hall, who not only allowed but pr- promoted work into the 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 issue of climate change and what it meant for. Uh, wildlife conservation and we all and any professional in the field can look at the science and come to the conclusion that uh, the climate is changing and so regardless of the cause of that so you could in in the bush administration what we could do is we could set that aside and say listen let's not let's not argue about what the cause is we can see the data we're all science we're trained this is a scientific agency we know it's going to have huge consequence for the conservation of wildlife so let's begin uh, to build the capacity to deal with that and so even during the bush administration we made tremendous progress and and we were able to publish our climate change strategic plan right at the beginning of the obama administration so our interaction, I think I met you when I was working for the state of Florida, the Fish and Wildlife um, Commission down there, mm-hmm. Nick Wiley, you know yeah. Nick very well, and I created this climate change course, and I was recruiting speakers to come down, and every month I'd have a different speaker, and it was a great lineup, but then mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to get Dan Ash, and you had just become the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, mm-hmm. and and I asked Nick, can you help out here? Can you help yeah. recruit? And then all of a sudden, you, you agreed not only to participate, but you were going to come in person, I, and I just couple things i want to thank you again that you know it was just a big thrill for everyone down there it's like the director's coming down to talk to our class and i guess my next question well why the heck did you do that (laughs) (laughs) uh well i think you know it's a it's it is the overarching issue for the conservation of wildlife terrestrial aquatic marine life you you can't our job certainly is to you know it's to work in the here and now, but also to to chart a course that's going to provide for abundant and healthy 
distributed populations of fish and wildlife into the future. And so if, as you look into the future, you can't have a strategy that doesn't think about and deal with the effects of changing climate. And so for me, it was, a, it, it was and is a, an extremely important issue for all conservationists uh, to, uh, to be aware of and to be engaged in. And you can't conserve waterfowl in the United States without starting to think about the landscape of tomorrow. We can look at the prairie potholes in the Dakotas and in the prairies of Canada, and we can see uh, where waterfowl are being produced today. And we know that and we do that very well. But where are those wetland resources going to be 10 and 20 and 50 years from now? And so if we're not beginning because land conservation is a long-term proposition. So uh, we, we have to begin to acquire the wetlands of tomorrow today. Um, and if we don't do that, if we're not aware enough and smart enough to do that, then that waterfowl resource that supports great tradition of waterfowling in the United States and then the millions and millions of birds that use that same habitat um, are going to be at risk in the future. You know, I, I, another thing I wanted to bring up, though, I remember I had just accepted the job with the National Park Service. So I was yeah. moving to D.C. when you spoke. I had accepted yeah. it, and it was the last few months. And just as an aside, I remember when I told you that I was joining the Park Service, we were walking down the hallway, and I don't know if you remember this moment. You just kind of gave me that look. You're like, oh, the Park that's Service. Nice. And you kind of looked down. <laughs> and I remember going, I what that's all about. Yeah. And I lasted two and a half years at the National Park Service. Yeah. Great people doing some great things. But I, I look back, I'm like, maybe Dan was sort of, <laughs> he was, maybe Fish and Wildlife Service would have been a better fit for me. But uh, anyway, I don't know if you remember that moment. I do here. remember that. And I mean, the Park Service is an outstanding organization. I love the National Parks and the, and the Park Service. And some of my best professional friends are are in the Park Service, and John Jarvis, the former director, is a great colleague and friend and a leader on climate change and adaptation. And um, But uh, coming coming into the, an organization like the Park Service from the outside, especially on an issue like climate change, that's a that's a that's a tough chore. It's a very traditional, very um, very kind of process laden culture. So it, it, I knew it'd be a, it'd be a, it'd be a challenge for you. But, <laughs> But I'm glad you did it, and uh, I'm, you know we uh, we all need to kind of lean in and take risk at some parts in our career, and I think that was a that was a a good one for you to take. I'm sure you learned a lot. Well, it, I was there at all the early conversations at adaptation with the Obama yeah. administration, but it was just you don't the park service people, your average park service, and even fish and wildlife, you yeah. start doing a summer job when you're 21 right. and you work your way up. I came in in DC, you know, yeah. like a GS 14 and you're just, you're just, you're almost like a hired assassin. Yeah. And yeah. it's that mentality. And I really like John Jarvis. Yeah. He could out talk any of us on climate change. Oh, I'd yeah. sit there and listen to him and I'm like, I do this day and, and he can kill me. Just explain this to the public. But yeah, the culture was just, you know, a little bit toxic in DC. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it, it, like all big organizations. I mean, they definitely, they have a defined culture. They, they have a way of doing business. They're conservative at their core. So something like climate change is going to be, I mean, it's, I, I, again, I think the park service has shown some great leadership. It's a, slow moving machine. Um, and, uh, and, and the fish and wildlife service can be much the same way. So. 
Well, to all my Park Service listeners, I know who you are. I love you guys. Yeah. You're doing some great climate work, even in this hostile environment. On, the, on that note, I want to switch back to, to the state wildlife agencies. When I was in Florida, I w- was there between that transition between Governor Charlie Crist, who just said, all in climate change. And I was also there in the transition to Rick Scott, who famously yeah. banned the term climate change. And to Nick Wiley's credit, and I can, I'm can i not trying to throw him under the, the bus here because he's moved on. He's mm-hmm. with the... Uh, it's um, unlimited now. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Was, that was an interesting move. He did really amazing job with that transition. He yeah. handled it beautifully. I just, how could you... And what surprised me once I left, we created a whole team working on climate change and they're still doing it. Yeah. They were able to keep their heads down. I don't know if you tracked that very well mm-hmm. when you were still there, yeah. but like they put their heads down. They weren't doing right. communication with it, but they're like, we're slogging you know, away. So. You know, I think in a state like Florida, it's getting much the same uh, as I was talking about the Fish and Wildlife Service during the Bush administration. I mean, you could bump your head against the wall if you wanted to, and but we really didn't need to. So it's like, okay, I... You know, we weren't the EPA. We weren't the ones that were going to solve, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. But we could talk about climate change and you could look at evidence and um, and you could get people to say, OK, well, if we're going to conserve wildlife, then we need to know something about climate and how it's changing and what that means. In a state like Florida, you, you, you can't uh, you can't think about a city like you know Miami or Tampa or Jacksonville and not think about okay we have to plan the infrastructure needs and the and the water supply needs uh, for millions and millions of people and we have to think downstream so um again regardless of what you may think about the cause of uh climate change you need to deal with the the result um and you need to do that in a very practical and nonsensical and nonpartisan non-political way and so i think uh, probably nick and his team did the same thing it's like listen let's let's deal with the what what we know are established facts and not really talk about things that people don't want to talk about and we'll deal with that in the longer term but from a pragmatic standpoint if you're concerned about conservation of key deer or florida panther or manatee or scrub jay or gopher tortoise you're going to have to learn something about what's driving those populations at uh, at large scale. Well, it gets to the point where you show up to meetings with the cities or local mm-hmm. planning units, other folks that aren't sort of in denial about climate change. And if you're a state employee, I mean, it's almost a bit embarrassing that you go and you can't participate right. in a productive way because we can't. It's just it. It's, can't talk about it. It's almost humiliating because you're there yeah. to be a you know part of this collaboration. Yeah. In the middle of the Obama administration, I had you know a manager out at. Chincoteague National Wildlife Refuge, you know, they're going through a, a, a developing a comprehensive conservation plan for the refuge. And they were doing that jointly with the uh, Astigue National Seashore and the Park Service. So we're working together and they were, you know, doing what they should do. And they were talking about climate change and what it means for erosion and, and facility design and public access. And, um, and the manager said to me, well, Dan, the problem is I have, I have a local mayor and town council in Chincoteague, Virginia, that simply doesn't believe in climate change, and they don't want to talk about it. Um, they won't talk. And so, uh, you know, again, at a very kind of real pragmatic level, you get you get a manager who's trying to work with a local, an important local constituency in the development of a long-range plan. He's trying to incorporate very kind of important and lofty principles of 
changing climate and what that means for day-to-day management decisions in the refuge, but he has a local partner who doesn't want to have a conversation about that at all. On that note, I think of AFWA meetings, Association of Fish Wildlife Agencies. You went to pretty much all of those. It's, yeah. it's, it was your bread and butter. And the, what, for folks, this is just an association of all 50 states and the territories. They have wildlife agencies, and so they have this annual meeting and more or less two meetings. And so a lot of them are very conservative, and there's a hook and bullet kind of mentality for a lot of state agencies for the longest time. We're managing wildlife for hunting and for fishing. And that culture is changing it, but but in some ways it's very old school. And I always, you would go and you would talk to folks or sometimes you would give a, a talk in front of a group. And you'd mentioned earlier about the idea that we have to be driven by science-based decisions. And you know where I'm going with this. And 49 out of 50 of those state directors generally were white males, a lot of them very conservative, and not doing squat on climate change and cl- you, to me, it was sort of like negligent, like you're not bringing that science into the management of the species in your state. And I mean, I know, <laughs> you must have been a bit frustrated and you're not, yeah. you're not working there anymore. So you can just lay it all out, you <laughs> let your hair down, right? You're correct that uh, maybe uh, 49 of 50 and in some you know cases, 50 of 50 right. <laughs> were uh, men, white men. And uh But it's a little unfair to say that they were not, um, that all of them were not uh, interested or engaged in climate conversations. I would say, uh, I I would actually say most of them were. Um, And so, for instance, they they had, AFWA formed a committee on climate change. And at most meetings, that, that committee was packed. It was, it was, it would be consistently one of the most attended uh, meetings at the AFWA conferences. And so I would say that the leadership in general was good to, to excellent. And so you had people like certainly Nick, Nick Wiley, um, but people like Dave Whitehurst in Virginia and uh, Ken Elo in Maine and, um, and Nick uh, Wasley in Arizona and, so just across the board, uh, people that were exhibiting kind of day-to-day leadership and on changing climate. And so I think across the board, I would say the kind of leadership was uh, good to exceptional. And, and, but, you know, there was a hardcore group of folks who, um, who didn't want to talk about it. And, um, and, and sometimes you would have a director who, for, you know, whatever reason, they, they probably, you know, they, their personal position would have probably been more progressive, but they had a governor and a commission uh, that didn't want them spending any time on the issue at all. And so uh, there was kind of that kind of political aspect of it. But, um, but uh, broadly, I would give the state directors a, a good, you know, uh, I'd give them a good C to B plus, I think. Um, uh, That's quite a range. <laughs> some of them I would give a, some of them I would give an A plus too. And again, AFWA played an important role, and they quickly established a climate change committee. It had people like you know Carter Smith in Texas, kind of a not a state that you would expect you know a, a somebody to be willing to lean forward and and take a proactive position on climate, but a guy like Carter Smith uh, uh, could do that and did did do that. 
people accuse me of having a softball interview if I don't say I disagree yeah, <laughs> strongly <really>. on that. Just <laughs> I look back at there was a window there. And if we recall, remember when the cap and trade bill was being discussed for climate change, there was going to be a huge pot of money for adaptation funding that would be funneled through the state wildlife agencies. And so for two or three years there, those climate change meetings at that committee were standing room only. It was very exciting. Right. People drooling at that. Money. Right. <laughs> and then it failed. And then I stayed involved with those groups, and those meetings went down to a trickle. It used to be like, okay, we'll do it at – there was the AFL meeting, but then there was the uh, sister meeting. You know, like oh, the North American. North American, mm-hmm. yeah. There's the sister Wildlife meeting. Wildlife Management Conference. Yeah. And the, they would get a trickle, and then you'd be the same two or three state directors that might That's show fair. up. And the, the energy was just the feds coming in because of the Obama administration. You'd have – your cast of characters, Mark Schaefer, and you know um, so some of those people would Kirk Johnson would come in and be the heart of that. And AFWA, to their credit, stuck with adaptation, but it went down to a trickle. And from the director's perspective, I just felt like okay, there there's yeah. no money. They're running. They don't care, you know. And the idea of like the science being embedded in management of species that that was not even part of the conversation so i'm yeah. contradicting you but i just i was yeah. there at those meetings i'd say you know that criticism is probably fair um but it it depends on the kind of uh, pocket so i would say much more sustained activism for instance in the bird community and so and at afwa meetings you know you have a big a big slice of that community, which is bird, waterfowl, and then, you know, and then like partners in flight. And I would say within the bird community, kind of a much more of a sustained commitment to uh, climate um, and figuring out the effects of climate on bird migration and bird ecology. And so I think it was probably differential, but you're right about the climate change committee. Once it became obvious that the money was not going to materialize, I, I think uh, interest waned materially i think well we be, almost became climate groupies i think of davia palmeri you know davia she was the yeah. adaptive she's moved on to oregon state wildlife agency there yeah. um she's finally getting out of dc and because of, a lot of states weren't participating she would be stuck recruiting the same five or six people from the state while i would go yeah. to all these meetings i get free trips but it's just like oh there's doug again the climate group yeah. from florida and, and so I, and i think that you, you know again your i would say your criticism is probably fair in the sense that you know in the obama administration we tried to build this network of landscape conservation cooperatives uh, to you know, address a larger scale issues of conservation, including climate change. Um, and the states were kind of, well, AFWA um, was kind of uniformly unenthusiastic about that. Um, and they saw it as a diversion of funding from, you know, more important, you know, endeavors. Um, uh, maybe that means more immediate. I don't know. But uh, so that whole effort, although still the landscape conservation cooperatives still um, exist. I think that the kind of reluctance on the part of the states has been a kind of principal retardant in terms of the way Congress has viewed that and the way um, I, I certainly probably this current administration is viewing that. A few more questions on this. And I don't know if you remember, I, I, I went from the National Park Service, I became the policy director of the Society of Conservation Biology, and one of my first meetings, like a month on the job, it was a SCB meeting in Bozeman, and you were 
giving a talk. Yeah. And I don't know if you even remember the content of that. I was paying attention, but you know, not super closely because I was so used to seeing you yeah. federal types doing these meetings and I was there just in the support. Right. And then afterwards, all the SCB people were just livid. They're just, oh, I can't believe Dan came in here and said those things. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm on the SCB. And I'm like, nothing seemed too offensive to me there. And I don't suppose you remember like why oh, yeah, it I was that. what ticked them off so much. Uh, I think what ticked them off was the um, what I was doing was being very uh, pointed and stark about we're living in the midst of an extinction crisis and this whole idea that we can save everything is wrong and that you know what people like to hear Fish and Wildlife Service directors say is draw a line in the sand and say you know no, no, nothing will go extinct on my watch. Um, uh, which is a very, you know, easy thing to say, but it's just fundamentally wrong. I mean, we uh, what we know is that species go extinct every day, mostly things that we don't even know exist. Um, and, uh, you know, we're living in the midst of a crisis. And so the, the notion that we that we can sustain <clears throat> all of biological diversity in all of its abundance and all of its, you know, richness, and we can put another two and a half to three billion people on the planet in the next 30 years. I mean, anybody who really is trained in a scientific discipline, you can't do that. You, you can't in any ecological context, you know, uh, put more and more of a very opportunistic, very consumptive species on the, on the planet and not have any consequence for all of the rest of of biological diversity and and so for me it was a little bit instructive that a that an organization like um like the society of conservation biology would find that um disturbing i can to be honest with you i found it disturbing that they would reject that kind of notion that we have to be aware of what the challenges are and and for me that the first uh, step in awareness is to speak the truth um and and so that was disturbing. I know that was disturbing to them. It was, uh, but I think uh, hopefully that's the role of a Fish and Wildlife Service director is to is to speak the, as Al Gore would say, the in, inconvenient truth, right? Well, at the time, I just recall not being like really bothered yeah. by what you said. <laughs> I, I, I was ruined by the federal government, and that yeah. sort of like. To be honest with you, I didn't find I didn't think it was that controversial, and especially for that audience, I oh, didn't think that it would be. For a year uh, later. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, like you mentioned pika, you know, earlier, I mean, I think a species like pika, um, when the Fish and Wildlife Service made its listing determination, clearly climate is driving those populations. They're kind of, you know, those mountain environments are going to increasingly become islands, sky islands, right? They're going to retreat to higher and higher elevations until eventually they, they won't be. Um, any habitat for them. And so, you know, when that's going to happen, uh, you know, certainly subject of dispute. I think we'll have pika for the foreseeable future. But, you know, in the long term, are, are they going to be able to make a living? You know, probably not. Hawaiian birds, debatable. Whether we can solve those, you know, very vexing problems. And, you know, ocean, you know, the marine environment, um, you know, when you see, I'm trained as a marine biologist, and when you see ocean temperatures and pH changing, those are, those are huge drivers um, of ocean ecology. And the idea that we can sustain all 
of you know marine biodiversity in the face of of those kind of changes is 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 um, I, I just don't see how you get there from here. Now, can we save significant portions of biological diversity? I think we can, and I think we will. Um, but it first requires a pretty sobering, you know, um, analysis of what the challenge is. All right, three more questions. First one is: you created quite a a, a good climate legacy at the Fish and Wildlife Service. I think of the landscape conservation cooperatives, and you know, there was a national. Fish and Wildlife Adaptation Strategy with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Mark Schaefer was the, the the head of that. And, you know, there were some controversial decisions, the Wolverine decision, speaking of SCB. Knowing, and I'm not getting into the Trump administration here in this conversation, there's really no point, and you're too much of a smooth operator to get caught up in those sort of lines of questions. But <laughs> would is there anything in hindsight you would have done differently and i think even like climate training i still i'm still on the climate academy like the committee um to bake in climate change within fish wildlife service had you known that this administration was going to be so hostile there's republican there's democrat but then there's trump on climate change i mean is there do you even now ponder like oh we could have maybe done this and that is there anything I I think there's I don't think so really I mean because we were doing everything that we could do within the construct of dur- during the Obama administration we all had constrained budget right and so I mean we kind of turned the machinery of our National Conservation Training Center to climate we were we incorporated into all of our training curricula both at the you know uh, leadership training as well as technical training we um it was a kind of regular a piece of conversation at the executive level throughout the organization so you're trying to build a culture where people are aware and they're engaged and they feel empowered to uh, to speak truth about these issues. I think, you know, in retrospect, I mean, given the realities of budgets and uh, of available resources, I don't, I, I, I wish we would have been able to build more consensus within the state, within our state partners around things like landscape conservation cooperative, that ability to kind of take a step back, right, and not let the kind of urgencies of day-to-day um, management get in the way of a kind of long-term strategy uh, that incorporates things like um, like climate change and that sees conservation in a bigger context. I think that that it would have been um, that's a I think that's a little bit of a regret that we weren't more successful in doing that. And you know, perhaps and I'll you know accept some of the burden for that. I mean, I think perhaps we got distracted on. Uh, controversies of the moment that maybe exacerbated tension between a kind of classical state federal tension. And so maybe um, we all could have, I'd say going forward, I would say we need to be finding ways to work together and to not fight about things that don't matter. And, um, and, uh, and, and really kind of to allow us the, uh, the ability to focus on things that do matter in the long run. And, and so we're all guilty of that, I think, from time to time. So I think we probably could have done a better job there. 
uh, I guess the last question, and then one, I just want you to see if I can get a statement out of you is I asked this of all my guests, if you could recommend anyone to come on the podcast to talk about climate change, talk about adaptation, who would you recommend? Oh, wow. If I could recommend anyone. And you could maybe help get that person, <laughs> Mr. Connected to all these senators and help me out here. Uh, yeah. Your buddies with Senator Whitehouse? Uh, not, not real buddies <laughs> with Senator Whitehouse, although I, you know, I know Senator Whitehouse. You know what I would do, though? I would look for somebody, um, if you're thinking about a senator. Um, but not usually, whoever you want. It'd be at a zoo person, yeah. whatever. You're well, I'll, I'll come back to zoo person. But you know what I would do? I would go for a guy like Martin Heinrich from New Mexico because he's a sportsman. And he's a, but he's a, he's a real environmentalist, um, in the traditional sense of the word. And so I would, and I could help you with Martin. I mean, he's running for reelection right now, so he's probably not really willing to take the time. Um, but maybe after November, um, because he's a big minded guy. He's young and, uh, I think he'll be around this business for a long time. Uh, so I'd say somebody like that, um, uh, maybe on the other side of the a coin, somebody like Jeff Flake, who's, um, you know, he's leaving the Senate and he's a bit of an iconoclast. He's you know? ready to say anything right now, right? Yeah. Um, in the, in the zoo and aquarium community, it, it's hard not to suggest, uh, um, Julie Packard, um, who's, who's in a, she runs a great aquarium. It's, all about conservation it's all about the big picture um so somebody like julie packard and we could help get you an introduction or maybe somebody who works with julie like margaret spring margaret's their vp for conservation margaret was a high-ranking official within the national oceanic and atmospheric administration during the obama administration um the uh oh kathy sullivan Speaking of, I mean, Kathy's retired. Huh? It's always better. And she's living in Columbus. She's writing a book. Um, She's obviously a former NOAA administrator, uh, former uh, uh, shuttle astronaut. Yeah, Kathy. You should get Kathy. I can can help you with Kathy, too. Yeah. Um, I'd definitely do that. The On the zoo side... You know what you might do is, uh, Dennis Kelly is, uh, he's outgoing director of the Smithsonian National Zoo. He ran the Atlanta, he ran Zoo Atlanta. He was an executive with Coca-Cola before that. He's run an energy company, a you know, small energy company. Dennis has a wide, a breadth of experience. Um, he's now running Smithsonian Enterprises. Um, but he's gonna, he's, he's in the process of retiring, uh, too. And Dennis, as a matter of fact, as we speak, he's hiking up Kilimanjaro. But um, uh, so uh, Dennis would be a great person to talk to. All right. Last thing I could get out is that we didn't jump into the Trump administration, how things are differently. But it's just I talk to people at the Fish and Wildlife Service still working there today. And is there anything you could say to them? Morale is down. Is there anything? These are your former employees that you just want to share with them. I would say, you know, we all go through rough patches in our career, and I uh, certainly uh, did. And I would say in times like this, it's um, smart to 
keep your profile maybe a bit lower, but your head up. And, you know, lay the groundwork for tomorrow. Do your job today. Stay optimistic. Lay the groundwork for tomorrow. Um, because tomorrow will be better, almost certainly, than today. Good message. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. This yeah. was great. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for what you're doing. It's, it, it is the issue of our time. And, you know, when you think about it and you think about children and grandchildren and kind of future of this planet, I think that this issue of, of climate change is, is one that we have to spend much more time thinking about. And, and it's about tomorrow. So, um, to lay in the groundwork so that we can all be successful tomorrow. So, all right. Great. Thank you. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap to a fantastic episode. Thanks to Dan Ash for coming on the podcast. It was great talking about zoos and also his role at the Fish and Wildlife Service. Times have changed, and it's good to know what we need to get back to when a more sane climate change approach comes into play. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I'll approve you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the Facebook wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. And again, I'd mentioned earlier, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Send me a note. Finally, Upcoming guests include Jeff Goodell, a contributing editor with Rolling Stone magazine. He has just published a book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World, and it's getting a ton of press. We had a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to publishing that. All right, check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in the show notes, especially the links to the Flip Cause donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. <laughs>